Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education. I'm Daniel Shea. Today, we'll be talking to William Germano and Kit Nichols about their book, Syllabus, the Remarkable, Unremarkable Document that Changes Everything, published by Princeton University Press this year. Do you teach or do you care about education? You do, I'm sure. Why else would you be listening to the podcast, right? Well, you need to read this book. I'm serious. At turns radical in the interventions it proposes in educational practice, at turns perspicacious in the views it opens on the act of teaching, which is really not teaching at all, but learning, at turns inspirational in the words it drops in the teacher's ear, syllabus, subtitled The Remarkable Unremarkable Document That Changes Everything, belongs in every teacher's hand, as well as in the hands of many an administrator and policymaker. How about this gem for an uplift and a reevaluation of the profession? I quote, Whatever we do, we do for those who come after us. And teaching is a central way that our knowledge becomes active in the world. William Germano's and Kit Nichols' idea to tag an entire pedagogy to one single document is brilliant. Brilliant because the document deserves the attention. As all of you who are teaching or have taught in the tertiary level, and also many of you who are or have taught in the secondary level too will know, the syllabus kicks off the academic season. The syllabus is the rule book and the referee. The syllabus is the scoreboard of disciplinary knowledge called the reading list. William Germano and Kit Nichols have much to say about all these functions of this remarkable and remarkable document, much that is new, and much that was already there but has been lit now by new light. And more importantly, William Germano and Kit Nichols say much, much more. In fact, every line of the syllabus becomes for them an opportunity to consider and discuss just what we teachers want and really the crux of the whole book, just what our students want. The book is not a how-to guide. You won't find here 10 steps to better teaching or how to write the perfect syllabus in just two weeks. And that is a good thing. My experience has always been that no matter how helpful step one, step two guides can be for some of us some of the time, the books about such essentially human activities as parenting or writing, or in the case of syllabus, teaching and learning, those books are best when they take the wide view while also not falling short on detail. Syllabus takes the wide view. Syllabus does not fall short on detail. There's enough detail for many, many fruitful rereadings, collaboration and community, schedules and heightened moments of learning, the citizen of the classroom, the optimal assignment, and the studied improvisation required of the teacher who would learn together with a classroom of students. That's just a few of the topics which William Germano and Kit Nichols have turned their attention to in their book, Syllabus. This is what learning looks like when it turns into teaching and what teaching looks like when it turns into learning. Bill, Kit, welcome to New Books in Education. Thank you so much, Daniel. That was a really generous and uh, perceptive take on the book. 
Thank you. <laughs> um, so the book um, seems uh, to be sort of the culmination of an experience in teaching, uh, a view to the theory of teaching, um, a wider view to its uh, societal, uh, uh, I don't want to say consequences, that seems to be far too negative, but it's a societal effects for sure. Um, clearly, it's grown out of your own practice. And um, that's one particular reason why I think that uh, the listeners would be interested to hear uh, how both you, uh, Bill and Kit, uh, came to these ideas and your backgrounds that led you there. Well, I'll jump in. Uh, my background has been described as non-traditional. I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, <laughs> I went to graduate school and earned a PhD in English Lit. I came back to New York City. I'm from New York. I was looking for a job teaching and discovered that my opportunities would be considerably greater if I were to explore other forms of employment. Sounds very much like looking for a job in 2020. And I found a berth in scholarly publishing. I worked at Columbia University Press for seven years and then at Routledge, which is a British scholarly house, uh, I was vice president for editorial in New York for a long time, almost 20 years, so that I had more than 25 years of experience working with scholarly books. Now, the reason that this is relevant to the project on syllabus is what I began to discover is that I was working not really with manuscripts, or rather not only with manuscripts, not only with authors, but with teachable questions, I was trying to find what would be of value to the academic readership for these books, and to do so in terms of the utility, not merely the brilliance, but also the utility of the books I wanted to publish. Uh, that might sound like a fancy way of saying what would sell, but I think if one switches that slightly and instead talks about how people might use a book, one has an entirely different perspective on the decision to make uh, a manuscript, a book, and distribute it throughout the world. In 2005, I basically finished my career in scholarly publishing. I had been writing books about publishing, uh, and those books have happily Continued seem to be continued to be of use to people because my publisher, my other publisher, has has kept them in print, um, and I more or less stumbled into an academic position at Cooper Union where I teach. I came as dean of humanities and social sciences, and I did that for eleven years, and now I am a humble servant of the college, and uh, I am a professor, and I teach. I did teach while I was dean. I taught when I was in graduate school at Indiana University. And those experiences collectively gave me exposure to students at many different levels and presented me with problems and questions, which honestly, I don't think I fully reflected upon until I was at Cooper Union. So as it were, into my second career. But for me, all the publishing work I've done has been an extended form of teaching. And the opportunity to think directly about how students learn and working with Kit 
uh, has been an enormous pleasure in writing this book. Uh, it's an act of exploration as much as it is anything that might be presented to the world as a, a radical rethinking. And Kit and I can talk back and forth and maybe not even entirely agree as to the radical nature of what's in the book. But I think it'll be a startling book. I'll stop there and let Kit come in with his own uh, biographic journey. So thanks, Bill. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I had a, a similarly uh, semi-non-traditional path insofar as, um, you know, I finished graduate school in the wake of the 2007-2008 financial crisis, so faced a really terrible academic job market. Uh, in fact, the first year that I was applying for for professorships, more than half of the jobs I applied for were, were withdrawn um, during you know after I had submitted the applications and before the cycle was complete. Um, so I quickly found myself scrambling trying to figure out what the next thing was, uh, and wound up teaching in the writing program at New York University, um, where there was a really robust faculty development program. And at the same time, I was also working in the writing center at the Cooper Union. And over the course of those years, I I sort of quickly figured out that the things that I thought I knew about teaching college didn't work. Uh, I remember many times showing up to lead a discussion, you know, of, say, Paradise Lost or, you know, any other uh, difficult text. And having just a set of passages that I wanted to talk through with the students, which is sort of what I had seen my professors do. And I quickly realized that I had no clue what actually, you know, what buttons to push, what questions to ask to get the students who didn't already know how to work with the text at a high level to to start really transforming how they think about it. Um, So I quickly started to realize that, you know, the act of teaching is is an act that requires continual philosophical reflection. And uh, working in writing centers, you see that at a really direct, immediate level where you've got one student sitting across the table from yourself. And you've got to find a way to get the student to start saying and writing smarter things than they could before. Um, I stumbled into the, the idea, for example, that inductive reasoning is a thing that students are largely not taught. Um, They're generally, at least in the American education system, you know, basically trained to think that if they can repeat a set of stock phrases about a text, uh, you know, reading James Baldwin uh, and the really sophisticated essays he wrote about the nature of race and uh, and social relations in the United States. And students would basically write an essay that was just moralistic and just said, you know, racism is bad, which of course it is. But, you know, Baldwin doesn't exactly say that. He says something really difficult and nuanced about how racism works. So I quickly realized there's all these questions I didn't know how to answer for myself about how students learned. Um, so I almost accidentally, you know, partly just because it's where the jobs were, found myself uh, working to figure out how I could help students do things they couldn't do before. And that really began to transform how I thought about my own career so that now uh, I run a college writing center. um, And the job really is to to help younger scholars, uh, people, you know, recently have completed PhDs, people finishing their graduate degrees, 
learn how to teach, which is something that, you know, uh, there's a long conversation about this, that just because you finished a PhD doesn't mean you really know how to teach. So, um, so Bill and I started talking about what it would mean to write a book about the syllabus. The idea was Bill's. Um, and we had been talking with each other about teaching for years before that. And quickly, the, the idea of, you know, what does it mean to talk with a colleague about teaching? Um, what would it mean to take that act of conversing with a colleague about teaching and turn it into a sort of book length essay reflecting on what it means to organize a semester's worth of learning for students? So that's how we got here. Uh, and we had a lot of fun doing it. That's the that's kind of the critical piece of the story, I think. I, what, one thing I'd want to add to to Kit's description of our experience is that your listeners will immediately recognize from my uh, mentioning dates we are very different generations, and uh, I can speak only for myself on this on this point. I had no training in teaching. I recall nothing that was training me to be a better teacher when I was in graduate school. And once I was out of graduate school, there was the tacit assumption that, well, you know how to teach, you have a PhD, and it's a PhD in English, therefore you must be particularly skilled and attentive to the way the way um, language works and be able to transmit that knowledge magically to students. Boy, oh boy, that's not true. Uh, the, it's the not true for anyone, really. <laughs> it's, it's amazing what assumptions are made about what the terminal degree of the PhD in most fields conveys. I, I, once again, drawing upon my background and my first background in publishing, it is not true that because you can earn a PhD that you know how to write a book. Uh, and there's a parallel there to teaching. No one really Rarely, I should I shouldn't say no one, but rarely is someone trained in her or his PhD program in how to produce a book as opposed to high level research that would earn the degree. And while there has been a great deal more interest in training advanced graduate students in pedagogy and in thinking about teaching, uh, it's fairly recent that this is an emphasis. And even when it is an emphasis, it feels like definitely a minor one. Uh, We want, in writing this book, we wanted to do several things. Uh, First of all, I should interrupt myself to say it was tremendous fun working with Kit on this. But that's really about the finding someone who, with whom you can be on the same wavelength about a set of problems. once we figured out that we could do this, we spent, I don't know, Kit, how long was it? How long did it take us to write this? It was about a year. Um, and, you know, there were periods of really feverish, you know, uh, 12 hour a day kind of activity. Um, the rhythms of the semester interrupted us all the time. But we wrote it pretty fast, uh, given how long it can take for uh, scholarly books to gestate. And, and uh, just just to underline that point, we're writing this while we're working. So uh, summers didn't uh, summers are are lighter or light for me and lighter for Kit. Uh, so that we used one summer quite ex- 
quite intensively. Uh, nonetheless, it surprises me even now how rapidly this book got written. Did you find that so many questions have just popped into my head, but I'm going to stick with what you've just mentioned. Did you find that working parallel to writing a book on teaching um, enhanced the uh, the content, the ideas, uh, what you came up with? Uh, I, I, yeah, the, the, the thing that I desperately uh, have always needed and often found lacking in my work in higher education is just colleagues who love talking about teaching, about the nitty gritty of, you know, what you did in class one particular day, how it went, what went wrong. Um, here's a lesson plan I put together for trying to get my students to do this thing that they were having trouble with. Uh, that's, that's actually pretty rare in academic culture. So the pleasure of, of Bill and I sitting down across the table from one another before, you know, before the pandemic hit, um, and, you know, just, just, running through ideas back and forth. And oftentimes writing would emerge from us talking about something that had happened in class the other day. Um, and it made it, I think it made it much easier to write because teaching is a social activity. Uh, I think it's actually really hard to write about teaching if you're one person looking at it as a sort of, you know, in a clinical sort of way. The other thing that emerged from our collaborative work in writing the book is that learning and teaching are obviously overlapping or interconnected or possibly the same thing. I learned so much from Kit and from the process of working with him. I also felt that we were trying to inspire our readers to see learning and teaching as inseparable and not something uh, that could be conceptualized as two functions to be assigned to teacher and to student. Yeah, that connects with, you know, um, I've, I've long had trouble with the concept of the flipped classroom because it implies already that there was some, uh, some clear delineation between the quote-unquote delivery of content to students and then their act of learning that content. Uh, the very idea that, that there was a thing to flip in the first place has always struck me as somewhat absurd. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll double bill and, and you know, and we, we write quite a bit about this uh, sort of Mobius strip of teaching and learning where uh, it, the, the two terms uh, almost, you know, they're another one of these uh, classic sort of Derridian false binaries. Um. Right. If if I could uh, come back to what I hear as a common thread in um, what you've both said about your own biographies and what led you to the book, um, this idea that you don't really learn how to teach and you've got to figure it out on your own. And it almost seems to be parallel, just as you were saying, with this Mobius strips in you don't really know how to learn and you've got to kind of figure it out on your own. There's this wonderful uh, um, passage towards the end of the book where you talk about uh, what teachers are really meant to be doing. You you say um, along these lines, not a direct quote, that they're not meant to account for the world. Um, that would seem more to be uh, the work of the researcher. What teachers are, do, uh, are there to do is to change the world. So the students being their material, they, the teachers, need to master the art of helping people change. And 
in that idea, um, which serves, at, at, as I said, towards the end of the book as a sort of summary, I think we start to hear all of the different lines of argument that grew out of your own experiences um, that teachers need somehow to make a connection to collaborate, to use one of your words, with the students. Um, there needs to be an awakening amongst the students that's somehow initiated from the teacher side and so on. I mean, these are all very diffuse ideas, somehow hard to capture, but um, please tell me, do I have there something right about uh, the idea of what it is that uh, the teacher is meant to be doing there in the class? Yeah, I, I think, um, and, and I'm thinking right now about uh, the, the chapter right in the middle of the book on, which is really a, a you know, it's a chapter on assignments. That's how it started out. But effectively, it's a chapter on student development. Um, and even more particularly, I'd say it's, a, you know, it's writing about students becoming. Uh, I think that we don't pay enough attention to the the kinds of transformation students undergo. We, we write a fair amount about, about fiction writing uh, and about thinking about storytelling and narrative. And, you know, the, the central, most important rule in storytelling is that the character encounters difficulty and is transformed by their the sort of crucible of that difficulty. And conceiving of students in those terms seems to me to be exactly right and exactly what we tend not to do. <laughs> um, there's, there's so much uh, technocratic language about what teaching is about, especially in higher education recently. And uh, we really wanted to push back against that that deeply inhuman conception of the teacher's work. You know, um, teachers have a social role to play. Uh, it gets, I think, cheapened sometimes and politicized uh, from every sort of side. But ultimately, you know, we have the difficult work of imagining a future. Um, our students will go on into the world and the the ways in which they have been transformed in their education will live out over the coming decades. Uh, and I mean, I, I lose sleep at night uh, thinking about what I'm going to teach for exactly that reason. Mm -hmm. so, um, yes, Bill, please. I was going to just, just I'm just thinking about my, uh, my first year students. I'm teaching freshmen now and let me tell you let me tell your listeners if you're going to write a book on on the syllabus you become deeply anxious about the syllabus you're creating for your own classes you're reading <laughs> it over again and again and thinking wait a minute am i doing something here that follows the principles and the ideas that are in the book we've just written uh or i'm doing something that flies in the face of what my what uh, my, my co-author and I have uh, determined would be the most useful way of thinking practically and philosophically about what the classroom does. But one of the things I've done is I've been telling my students without giving them the whole story of this book because they don't need to know it, but telling them why the assignments, not what the assignments, but why the assignments. And Following from the, the, the thinking that Kit and I have spent a lot of time uh, on in the last couple of years in order to produce this book, 
I wanted to explain to them that they're taking a class because they don't know how to do things. Not so that they will get some facts and then say, oh, I have now read Toni Morrison. I have now read Ursula Le Guin, two authors I'm teaching to freshmen this semester. But those are materials we will study, and I hope they will be disturbed and delighted and puzzled and happy to have made time in their lives to spend with these texts. But I also want them to be able to do things they have not yet been shown that they could do, things that they didn't realize they were capable of. I keep on returning to them, uh, returning to the point that the, ob- the reason to take a class is because you don't know something and you don't know how to do something. And where I'm pushing them is to articulate to themselves and then to us as a, as a working group, because I like to think of our class, my classes as working groups. What don't I know how to do and what do I want to learn how to do as a function of taking this class? And I think that philosophical perspective may not be that different from what most teachers, most committed, ambitious teachers are doing. It's really just the phrasing it that way that I think makes the difference. And there's a lot in the book where Kit and I are doing things and saying things that honestly I don't think will make anyone's head explode. But what we've tried to do is we tried to position it in language that manages uh, to consolidate a real value, a real objective that real teachers pursue with real students. This is something that you certainly achieve. I mean, we've dropped right into the middle of the book, chapter five, where assignments are uh, talked about quite uh, in detail. Um, Bill, you uh, or Kit or both of you come up with a line along the lines of most of the world of human activity can be assigned. And that is one of those formulations that, um, as, as you say, uh, rightly, Bill, yes, many teachers may have been thinking in that direction, but when it's captured like that and backed up by the essayistic style that you use to bring us to that point in the argument so we really understand what is meant by all of that phrase, um, then it's something I think that people can turn around and then work with. Yeah, I think the um, I think a lot of the the work we were trying to do in the book is is to distill a set of principles that that good teachers may already know, in fact, but that all of us, myself included, forget. Um, and we forget these things because we're distracted. We forget them because uh, we're cutting corners. Uh, we forget them because our training as PhDs continually points us to think that the important thing is what we're doing. And this is, you know, the mantra of the book. It's not about what you do. It's about what your students do. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's very, very easy to forget uh, in the, the moment of worrying about your own performance. Uh, but it's actually a relief when you remember that the question is your student's performance and that your job is to get out of the way and to make it possible for them to perform. And uh, we mean it when we say that, that everything in the world, every activity can be assigned. Uh, but I don't think that we do typically think about assignments in terms of literally, what are the activities we're helping students learn how to perform? 
which isn't to cheapen you know knowledge itself. Uh, obviously, if there isn't content, it's not really clear what you're teaching. But uh, but in trying to write a chapter about assignments, you know, we quickly realized well, this is a chapter about a sequence of things that happen. Um, that you know, working backwards, uh, and this is this is uh, I think really a, a critical point. If if I am you know working from my own uh, disciplinary perspective and Bill's as well, if I'm a literature teacher, I already know how to read a text at a very high level. I've probably forgotten the sequence of things I had to do in order to learn how to do that work, um, and just pausing and asking oneself, you know, okay, wait a second, what did I have to do first, second, third, fourth, fifth? to get to the point where I could produce, you know, that type of interpretation. Um, uh, it's a principle that you can expand out to any discipline. And again, we're, we're not, we're not uh, inventing anything wildly new here, but, um, but remembering the principles and always rigorously asking ourselves, are we following those principles? Uh, I, I think that's the, that's the crucial part. And to remember also, you know, this is, this is high-minded work. Um, it's not easy to figure out how one, you know, learns how to do some kind of sophisticated task. Yes, I wanted it, to, just, oh, sorry, Bill. Yes. Sorry. I just wanted to jump in on, uh, Kit's, Kit's point here about, uh, sequencing. Uh, that's another th- thread throughout this book that the syllabus looks if you look at a syllabus, it lays out X number of weeks and the things that are going to be covered or discussed or assigned for each of those weeks. But because they are printed in order on a piece of paper, it doesn't really make them a sequence. And that's one of the things that we're very, we feel very strongly about. It's how to create a sequence out of what is merely a collection of things that appear to be arranged in some meaningful move from this point to that point. The, the work is hard. It requires an enormous amount of, uh, of backstage preparation by the teacher. It may actually mean the teacher speaking less during her or his hour or two hours with the students. One of the things that we uh, uh, repeatedly uh, emphasize is the necessity of preparing for your classes. But that doesn't mean just having the best possible notes to give a lecture. In fact, if anything, it requires more, let us call it what it is, philosophical thinking about what one wants to accomplish and why before one engages one's students. Because if you do that, we, we, we believe that the odds are considerably greater that the students are going to be able to discover what you want them to discover. Um, we are cutting across the book in so many different directions <laughs> <laughs> and picking up bits and pieces of all of these ideas. Um, from all different angles, uh, for the readers to give just perhaps a little bit of structure uh, and maybe revisit some ground that we've just covered. Um, 
I probably should have started off with this question. Would it be possible for you uh, to give us a snapshot of the syllabus in 2020? Um, just to briefly back up what I'm saying here so that you understand where I'm going. Um, from your biographies, I heard that I'm probably in the generation between both of you. So we've all, and our listeners will cover the ground here, there, and everywhere between all of us. Um, we've all experienced syllabuses. Some of us have read syllabuses. Um, but what does it look like now? Because you are modest in a sense in saying we just are repackaging ideas that were there. It's not entirely that way. I mean, the view that you give us of the syllabus, the 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 syllabus opens up as a wide expanse of an entire class, an entire classroom, a set of students, um, a pedagogy, an administrative tool. Um, I mean, I walked away thinking, wow, the syllabus is quite a thing. <laughs> so with that in mind, um, is it possible uh, for you to just sort of give us a, a brief look at a generic syllabus today? Ooh, um, you know, we, we write a fair amount about the, the way in which uh, administrative priorities might be overwhelming pedagogical priorities in the syllabus. Um, and for some good reasons. But, you know, nowadays the syllabus is being asked to do so many different things for so many different people. Um, it needs to protect uh, the university and the students legally. Um, it, you know, increasingly has a kind of contractual uh, sense. Um, it, uh, I think, also has an increasingly consumer sense. In other words, you know, a, a, a sort of bill of sale. Um, and maybe even a warranty of sorts. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we also have a bit of an apocalyptic vision of the syllabus at the end of the book, uh, imagining what might happen as um, the sort of neoliberal paradigm creeps deeper into higher education and uh, the syllabus may become uh, more and more of an opportunity for students to start looking ahead towards job placement, uh, for the, the shape of their education to be uh, produced by the job market. So I, I think we were concerned that the syllabus is sort of exploding out in so many different directions right now, being asked to do so many different things, very few of which are actually, you know, design a semester's work according to principles that will really, truly honor the time and the energy, and in some, you know, many cases, the money uh, students are putting into their educations. Uh, Bill, you probably have more to say about this, too. The, the, I think the, 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 the syllabus that we're dealing with right now is, in the first instance, likely to be overfreighted with too much material. It is a teaching 101 mistake to assume that your syllabus is better the more material you put on it. And there's an easy, this, there's an easy confusion between graduate level seminars where you can put 30 things on it and say, all right, in, this, in the next three sessions, I, we expect you to have read all of these and be able to say something intelligent about it in, in, around the seminar table and giving several things to students and assuming they know how to read them and what to read for. More to the point, 
what we want them to do when they come together in the class. So I, I would say that the first thing that concerns me about the syllabus is the, the, this, our syllabus moment right now is that there is likely to be too much stuff and not enough tool and an insufficient um, training in what to do with what one reads or otherwise examines, since not all syllabi are completely focused on texts. Uh, the other difficulty, I think, is that in... Well, we are, we are speaking to you during the corona, uh, during the... Um, the COVID crisis, and we don't know where things are going to go. But so much teaching is online. And even before the COVID crisis, so many of these texts are available online. I don't know that we've thought as teachers sufficiently about what that uh, continuous exposure to the computer as opposed to, say, the printed book means about how students read. So I, I think one of the difficulties is the... Uh, thinking, thinking through how people read, how students read, what they're reading, what we're expecting them to get from their reading, what we're expecting to take from that reading back into the collaborative arena of the classroom. It's simply not enough, if it ever was, to say, these are the readings we're going to be looking at during the semester. That is, it makes the most sense to build a syllabus where the teacher understands why she or he has put a particular thing onto the syllabus. And if one can't say that to oneself, it's a good moment to just say, hold it. Let me just stop and think, why do I want that piece here? The answer can't be because I've taught it three times before. It has to be something about why it is meaningful and can be made meaningful and to, to, to return to a w word that I come up with a lot, useful to your students. Yeah, and, and I, to follow, follow from, from Bill on that, you know, the, other, the other thing that I think we discovered about what it takes to make a good syllabus in 2020 is to abandon the idea that you could, as, as you said at the top of, of this interview, Daniel, um, the idea that you could write one in two weeks. Uh, we really want to forward the idea of a syllabus as a thing that you arrive at via a writing process. You know, I'm a writing teacher. Bill is a writing teacher. I mean, ultimately, that, that is a lot of what you do as a literature professor. And we realized that there was not nearly enough focus on the, the staged drafting work the teacher has to do to arrive at a, at a good syllabus. But the, you know, the conception of the teacher as somebody who goes through many stages drafting a syllabus, knowing that the syllabus is ultimately a sort of design for things that will become live later, uh, is so different from the syllabus as bureaucratic document that students look at and that simply keeps time for the semester and that, you know, basically lays out a set of legal obligations. You keep comparing uh, the syllabus to the writer's activity, the writer's text. Uh, I myself am also a writing teacher, and uh, I like to hear that. And I see the parallels uh, very, very strongly there. And if you think, uh, for instance, Bill, as you were saying, um, here uh, is this particular item on the reading list. Is it useful? Which is a very good word to think about um, when you're also writing a sentence. Is this phrase here useful? Is it doing anything for the text? 
Um, but you also bring up, Kit, there, uh, the, the key difference, the point that it's going to go live. It's going to involve a group of people who are there to attain some knowledge, who are there to learn how to do something. A text may well do that. A book may well do that. An article may well do that. But certainly on a lower key level, because it's normally a reader individually alone, silently reading the text. Yeah. And often bits and pieces, putting it down and, and having a coffee and so on. But if this document here is meant to initiate, run, and be the um, the ethos of a class, um, what what matters most, let's say? Let, let's, let's leave the administrative side out of it. I mean, we can come back to this idea of the community. Um, you make a wonderful, uh, long extended metaphor on the nation state and what it is to be involved in the class and so on. But let's think on the practical side. You bring in, um, for instance, the reading list, which you were just talking about, different types of time um, that you talk about. Um, and as we've mentioned before, the assignments. What is it that the, say, a page or a section of the syllabus needs to do to achieve such such <laughs> such a, a wonderful uh, uh, effect bill do you want to take this one yeah i you know uh, I, I, it's I, one of those questions that doesn't have a question right <laughs> it, honestly, it is it may be the the question of questions um for myself this semester uh, i've found and this is again partly uh, triggered by the COVID crisis is to put things in my syllabus, language in my syllabus that I might not otherwise and say to my students, look, we're working on Zoom for the whole semester. I don't for a minute think this is the best possible way to teach with you and learn with you. You may be telling me, as some of my students have already, I, I have various things going on in my life. I said, we all do right now. I don't believe this is the best possible way for you to learn and teach one another. And I don't think you will get the best possible, you will produce the best possible work in this environment of crisis. It's also an environment of crisis for me. And I want to kind of let them know that there's a real person teaching the class. I think the realness of the teacher is absolutely essential. Uh, the extent to which the teacher manages to share the human vulnerability, the curiosity, the need to take risks, these are for me the best ways to encourage students to develop the ability to understand what a risk might be and the courage to take that risk in front of other people. This is not about a public speaking shyness. This is about the tougher stuff. Raising your hand and saying, I want to try something out. I may be entirely wrong, as students frequently say. And sometimes they are entirely wrong, but not. they can only really be wrong on a factual level. The very fact that they're trying an idea out in front of others already makes me feel okay. One of the things I've been able to do here it is to encourage them to see that the risk of an idea, the risk of something not entirely formulated, or even better, the risk of a question, is absolutely what we want to develop in them as early as possible. 
Yeah, if I, I mean, can uh, just jump in, Kit, before you before you say something, because there there is something uh, very very key there that I'm hearing, Bill, which 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 is uh, brought up again and again in the book is this, uh, as you say, this risk involved and this honesty on your side uh, as the teacher that you say um, I've put in hard work, I've had difficulties, I don't know. Um, it's a wonderful way of taking down the facade of the professor has entered the room. <laughs> and it's also a wonderful way uh, of putting it when you say you can only ever be wrong on the factual level. If a student has said something and wasn't, even if the student was saying it to impress others, there's a reason for that. And that matters. Um, and, and, and that's, that's something I really like. I just wanted to say, uh, please kid, I, I, I jumped in there. No, it's all right. I, I was thinking about, you know, this, this, the problem, one of the problems of the syllabus is that we sometimes write them without thinking about the fact that they'll be read. Um, similar to how our students often write papers for somebody who's, you know, obligated to read what they wrote. I mean, you know, we're paid to read what they wrote. And I, I often tell my students that's, you know, that's, that's not a great model for thinking about audience. Um, if the, you know, the only person you're ever writing for is somebody who's been paid to read your work, then maybe, you know, maybe you're, you're thinking about things in the wrong terms. Uh, but the syllabus is something to be read by students, which means we want them to want to read it uh, so that the tone matters tremendously. Um, you know, the, the week by week breakdown, just, you know, to get back to your original question about if we were to think about any of the individual sections of the syllabus that are sort of the standard sections and a lot of existing work uh, about the syllabus uh, that's out there, you know, preceding this book, we'll sort of break down section by section how the syllabus functions. And we do a little bit of that, but, but as you know, having read the book, Daniel, we, we don't do too much of that because we're, we're more concerned with the, the deeper philosophical questions that underlie what a syllabus is and what it does. But, you know, let's say we take the week by week breakdown. What is it, what is it for? Well, it's for helping the students understand what they're doing and why they're doing it to look ahead, to get a, a preview of where they might go. Um, but of course, ultimately, really, it is, it is staging their work. Um, so it's not a set of uh, directives. It's a set of invitations. And tonally, there are things that we can do as writers to, to change how the students perceive the week-by-week breakdown. So, you know, to Bill's point, uh, the, the language that we choose to deploy in the syllabus, uh, the extent to which we humanize the things we're asking students to do. You know, we can't really require anything. I mean, students are free. They don't, they don't have to go to college. I mean, there's lots of economic reasons why one would choose to do so, um, but they don't have to be there. Uh, so a community, you know, functions best when the teacher is not a dictator. So, you know, what does... A, a founding document look like when it's about forging uh, a working learning community rather than, you know, dictating a set of things that people will be forced to do uh, and then, you know, graded upon. Uh, and I think, I think that tonal shift might be the most important thing when you're thinking about how you craft any individual section of your syllabus. One of the things that we didn't mention early on, uh, Daniel, and, and for your listeners, it might help situate the project of our book uh, uh, usefully, is that we may be PhDs in English, but 
we don't have English majors at the college in which we teach, Cooper Union. In fact, you can't get an undergraduate degree in any of the liberal arts. That is, we're not, as one might possibly suspect, preaching, uh, preaching to you know, future English professors. We're absolutely not doing that. Our students happen to be uh, largely um, half of the college. Half of the college are engineering students. And Kit has modestly not mentioned his own uh, his own uh, um, uh, first first interests in uh, in engineering. But it, it's something that's useful in terms of having a different, a better set of eyes on our project as we were going forward in it. But at Cooper Union, where we teach, the students are in engineering, they are in art, studio art and post-studio art, and in uh, architecture. That is, no one is taking a class with us except that it is a required course uh, or uh, for those few students who are particularly interested in things concerning literature and culture and related matters may wish to satisfy a distribution requirement for an elective. That is, we will never have students who will go through a sequence of, say, four years of studying increasingly complex and theoretical approaches to the study of literature, which means we have basically one or two shots with our students. And I, for one, am not I'm not committed or even interested in developing an in, developing a uh, elaborate structure of literary theory or cultural studies theory with freshmen. The best parts of literary theory and the best parts of cultural studies will nat- should naturally grow out of the kinds of conversations we have in the class. That seems to be the let's say typical learning situation, though. Um, because this gets back to uh, an issue that we were talking about at the the beginning of the interview, this idea that you have to somehow motivate the students to be able to do what you can already do. Now, if you're in a group of the converted, as you were saying, preaching to the people who already believe, then um, they're already looking to that, aren't they? and every single move you make and in everything they do themselves. So um, I'm not saying that it's easier necessarily to teach that because they may be more demanding and your skills get put to the test and so on and so forth. But the typical situation, uh, Bill, which you're describing, describes also my situation. My, uh, the people I teach how to write are typically biologists. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I can't really mention Shakespeare unless I want to take a risk. <laughs> Um, but, but I think this is the kind of, uh, situation many teachers will be finding themselves in. You mentioned also secondary education as well, high school teachers and so on, where syllabuses will show up as well. Um, so this is where, uh, the science and practice of, of learning and teaching need to be worked out and tested best, I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, uh, an old fashioned idea, you know, about, about, students in college, particularly, you know, that says something like, if you can't hack it, you can't hack it. Um, And uh, it presumes effectively that students in a way are already formed before they they get to us. Uh, But the truth of the matter is you can teach motivation. Motivation is a teachable skill. Um, It's also something more than a skill, but it's a thing that we can bring students into. And the question becomes, you know, a, a really complicated psychological, pedagogical, epistemological, ontological question, right? 
Um, how do you get somebody to love trying to do the difficult work of your discipline? And this holds just as true for you know a biology professor as it does for a literature professor. And we we were really uh, working hard over the course of the book to try to find uh, a range of reference that would resonate with people outside of the humanities. That uh, we're both humanists, but as Bill said, we spend a lot of our time working with colleagues and students who are not humanists. Um, so, you know, what does it mean to motivate uh, a literature major? to be excited about studying physics or soil science. Um, you know, that, that gets down to the heart of, I think, why most of us wound up in higher education in the first place and why the best secondary school teachers also do their work. So I, I, I really want to um, take as much of an opportunity as possible to ask everybody to think about that deep question. Um, I really, uh, I, I think that we we make a really critical mistake when we forget that first we have to win over our students' desire to to do the thing we're asking them to do. It's not enough to just tell them to do it. Uh, We really do actually have to find a way to get them to want it. You you state in the book one very plausible source of uh, where this motivation can come from, how it can spring off of the teacher into the class. And and you say it's that, that passion, that enthusiasm, um, that the teacher brings. And um, there was this one uh, section where you say that the teacher is always, the good teacher is always theorizing for him or herself. They're always certainly looking to find out about their craft, perhaps in, in reading the literature on it. But what they're really doing, and this certainly reflects uh, both of your practices, um, speaking with colleagues, uh, trying to learn from others, and simply just struggling. And I think this is a direct quote, struggling to be good people. And I had to think of my father. I had to think of, you talk about high-mindedness. I had to think of my own idealistic self at times as a teacher. But I, 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 do, believe, I do believe you've struck something there. Um, it, it does sound a bit wishy-washy, but I don't think it is because that's what comes across in a larger group is the authenticity. Yes. Um, Bill and I, you know, are both parents um, and uh, any of us who teach, if we're being honest with ourselves, there are days where we're phoning it in um, and we don't usually feel bad about that. Uh, feel good about that. Sorry. <laughs> Some of us don't feel bad about it. Um the the it's hard work to try to continue to be a good person. I mean, it, it does sound wishy washy, um, but it's 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 actually kind of an essential truth about the classroom. Uh, Bill, yeah, Bill, do you want to pick up on that because uh, we we spend a lot of time talking about this. I promise not to talk about Heidegger in this uh, podcast, <laughs> but you, I you are allowed to. to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to emphasize the word presence. Uh, getting students to be present in more than physical form sounds as if it's both an obvious obligation on the teacher's part and an easy thing. I don't think it's necessarily obvious to all teachers. And I think, um, I think that in the increasingly uh, adjunctified world of higher ed, We are asking teachers who are not appointed full-time to do more and more in order to teach well. Uh, And that's one profoundly uh, uh, unjust, both economically and politically. 
element of how teaching is currently operating. We need all teachers who are working with students, and again, not in front of students, but working with students, to be able to inspire them to be present, to want them to bring, as some students say, their best game to class. Uh, because the teacher will need to bring her or his best game. We don't always, we don't always do it. I, I, I can only say amen to kids saying <laughs> some days we know we're phoning it in. It happens. It, ha- it definitely happens. But in order to be present, we also have to step away ourselves. And uh, one of the things I learned probably through my time, uh, Kit and I have worked together now for about 10 years, uh, is that the class where I can accomplish most is not the class where I do the most talking. Uh, it's not exactly like doing a podcast interview, but you have to have the students be able to speak and whether they're going to do it physically in small groups or digitally in small groups, uh, it's important to design moments where, as it were, the talking stick is turned over to the students. And that's not simply question the teacher asking one student, Sarah, what do you think? Jamie, what do you think? And so forth. But having the students, trusting the students to talk among themselves without the teacher's presence. The teacher can jump in, maybe. That depends on what the teacher wants to do. But this notion of presence, I think, is, is, uh, uh, can be convincingly, can be more convincingly uh, expressed to the students by saying, I want you to be present. I want it so much that I'm going to step away and create these moments where you guys are going to talk to one another and then come back into the larger class and share what your conversations were like. So presence is, is both essential and complicated. And of course, as soon as the teacher steps away, the student is take, the teacher is stepping away, the teacher is taking a risk. We're all for that kind of risk. And you say that the uh, syllabus uh, can also help design these moments. So it's not just about the, it certainly is, as, 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 you, as you've uh, very clearly put it, uh, about the teacher's own risk in that moment. But uh, the syllabus can also contribute because you talk about the two different times involved, um, the course time, and then the, this gives me a chance to uh, speak some Greek, the kairos, <laughs> the, um, as you translate, the, the nick of time. Um, I, I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that is also what you're speaking to at this moment, uh, enabling or making that uh, making that sort of opening in the classroom through what the syllabus has designed also. There are a lot of metaphors in the book. Uh, and one of the ones that I am happiest about is the metaphor of jazz improvisation. Um, we have to find ways to make it possible for the students to do things they didn't know they could do and design, you know, opportunities and, you know, these moments where they're away from us and they can practice things, but then moments where they're together and they can practice things. Uh, We like to talk about the classroom as a practice room, uh, a place where an ensemble gathers. And there are some parts of the piece that are already written, right? I mean, in a standard jazz tune, you've got uh, a melody that everybody's going to riff on. But if you've designed the tune the right way, it becomes possible for the individual players to suddenly jump in and do things that are, that are new. Um, and, and that's a, a lot of what the Kairos is about. You know, 
what happens when a person makes a discovery? Uh, we all know that feeling of having an idea, the fireworks going off in your head, the connections that are being made, uh, the moment where you find a way of theorizing or conceptualizing a thing that you would experience, right? Maybe you experienced something a dozen times in your life, or you've heard other people talk about that particular kind of experience, um, or even for that matter, a thing that happens physically in the world. And then suddenly, oh my God, a physics concept helps you see how that thing works. Um, we, we really want to encourage a vision of the syllabus as a, a design for possibilities. That was one of our working subtitles, was uh, a design for possibilities. We, we think it's so critical that students have the space, but, but you know, not be left to, to, to just flounder around. Um, we have to increase their chances of success. And that's a lot of hard work for us, but it's hard work that ultimately becomes invisible if we're doing it well. And you've talked about the COVID crisis. You've uh, just mentioned jazz improvisation. Um, as you say, uh, many points in that uh, particular chapter, uh, the importance of listening. Yeah, The teacher listens, and this is the crux, and cultivates listening, cultivates a listening culture. Um, if we think of our society and our politics at the moment, that's becoming a challenge, isn't it? That's a big one. <laughs> That's a really big one. It, it was never easy for humans to listen. <laughs> but um, at this moment in history, to talk about listening as being one of those key factors in the classroom, doing it right. Um, is, there, is there anything that you would like to say on that? <laughs> it, it, it's connected, I think, also to the crisis of reading that, that we touched on earlier. I think all forms of getting oneself out of the way and gradually trying to hear what's happening um, and being generous, right? Generous listening. Uh, all of that has become more and more difficult. And of course, we've got a more, uh, a far more writing focused culture than we have a reading focused culture. Um, there's some great uh, research out there over the past few years about the, there's a, a book called The Rise of Writing um, coming from composition studies, suggesting that increasingly because of the sort of uh, self-promotional quality of writing and the increasingly instantaneous uh, quality of writing and the necessity of writing to promote the self um, and, to, you know, just to stay employed, um, you know, the conversations we've had with our publisher and our agent about promoting this book uh, and social media, uh, you know, made both of us really uncomfortable, I think, because... Uh, neither one of us wants to participate overmuch in the kind of rapid fire culture uh, that we live in. Um, it's, uh, it seems to me that, you know, when we talk about education as an opportunity to help our students invent uh, a new and a better world, which, yeah, it sounds uh, high-minded and maybe overly optimistic, but where else is it going to happen? How else are we going to find the space to cultivate listening and reading and slower paced study and revision and drafting uh, other than in college. Uh, Bill, I, I bet you have a lot to say about this one too. Well, I, I just want to pick up on, 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 Kit's, uh, on Kit's point. He mentioned um, generosity, which is an absolutely foundational value and quality of the successful teaching and learning experience. 
risk and generosity have to go together. You cannot step away from those things. Um, we talk about something that we sort of label critical generosity. Um, and so it's not simply mom and apple pie and saying to everybody, oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. That's not generosity. That is actually uh, stepping away from your responsibility as the teacher. But cultivating the capacity among students to listen to not only alternatives to what they've been saying, one student says something with another, I disagree. I disagree may not be enough. It may be that that uh, announcement of disagreement needs to be slowed down so that the disagreeing student can explain. And it may well be that what the student is saying is that I see it slightly differently. I have a variation on what the other student has to say. And through that, I think through that emphasis on the capacity for us to have varying responses rather than yes, no, on, off, switch responses to the world, we can begin to uh, understand, we can, uh, I think, continuously uh, underscore the value of listening the value of trying to hear the connections between that opinion or that perspective and our own, and then trying to see where commonalities can be built. Now, not every position falls in that category. There are some deeply evil people in the world with deeply evil views. But I don't think it's useful to take that on-off switch of ethical behavior an imagined on-off switch, and import it into the classroom as if one is looking for the yes-nos throughout the course, throughout the syllabus, and throughout one's entire educational career. And, and we write a little bit about the problem that in the political constitutions of, uh, of states, you can't really legislate epistemic rules. Uh, you can't you can't really set hard hard and fast ground rules for how we make knowledge. Uh, there's a little bit of that that's that's possible in the law, but it's it's quite difficult. But in a classroom, you can, uh, and a classroom gives you the space to try to imagine uh, a democratic engagement among a group where people do slow down, where they do listen to one another, where. Uh, where generosity is the core of the engagement. And, and, and as I just said before, if we're not doing it in, in the college classroom or the advanced secondary classroom, uh, where are we going to do it? And how are people going to learn how to do it, ourselves included? And that, that's really the helping people change, isn't it? Um, uh, to get back to one of our first ideas uh, that we brought up here and, and the conversation about what teaching actually is. Um, I can think of no better thing that could be brought out into society than the ability to listen. Um, seems like a simple thing, isn't, <laughs> isn't at all. Um, it sounds also though like uh, what you're aiming at with listening, for instance, build these nuanced responses to how I disagree. What is it about? At what level? What do I do about it? And so on is bringing in levels of reflection. And um, you have in, in, in chapter eight called for your eyes only uh, your idea of the instructor's copy or the reflective teaching copy 
of the syllabus. So in other words, the teacher needs to be practicing what he or she preaches. <laughs> um, could you maybe say a word to what this invisible copy, this uh, this probably what you were thinking partly of when you said unremarkable copy, because no one gets to see it but one person. <laughs> I, th- I think by unremarkable, we also meant that people take it for granted as as uh, as a subject uh, about which nothing could possibly be said that would be of any interest. We clearly don't feel that's the case. Uh, I think a lot of us do, when we have a class that goes really badly, feel really badly, uh, feel really badly about it. And one of the things we want to encourage is for anyone teaching to do some work after a bad class, an unsuccessful class, or one that seems bad or unsuccessful. What went wrong? How can I not have that happen again? It may be that uh, I didn't listen the way I needed to listen. It may be that I didn't make space for the student It may be that I allowed conversations to go in the wrong direction. There are so many ways that a class can, from the teacher's perspective, not quite hit the mark. And you know that's okay. You can't imagine that you're going to teach classes, each one of which is going to somehow be the perfect learning teaching experience. But that still is the aim. Um, I, I, with my background and my interests, I tend to, I tend to uh, default to live theater. Uh, the classroom is a theatrical event, and it's one that is not entirely scripted. One has to be prepared for things happening and the other actors in your, in your, uh, in your, the- in your theater doing things that you have to respond to. But it's, the, it's what happens afterwards. For the teacher, it's going back and saying, okay, this is what worked, this is what did not work. One of the things that we do say, and um, this, believe me, this is born from uh, a hard, hard-won experience, is that if you assign reading, any reading, and do not use it on the day you said you're going to discuss it, you've done two really difficult things to yourself. <laughs> One, you've lost their attention, and two, you've begun to train them that the readings on the syllabus may be optional. It's really, really important for the teacher to know when to use a reading and when to choose a reading and what is going to be done with that reading. Um, You make notes about what worked well, what didn't work. And I think both positive and negative things. This is a little different, by the way, than than merely saying, oh, I, my, my syllabus is all set. I have the one that I taught last fall. Class worked really well. That may be the case for the syllabus, but you want also to have your notes, notes that you took for yourself on that syllabus, on that class, to know what worked and what didn't work, even down to the level of what were the questions, what were some at least of the questions that came up in class that you hadn't anticipated. Because those things are likely to, to evaporate when the semester is over. Yeah, and if you let's say you've designed an activity for one particular day in your syllabus, students show up and they fail miserably at that activity. Well, having a space to pause and reflect, not just on the fact that they couldn't do it, but then ask yourself, well, why couldn't they do it? Uh, that's going to send you 
backwards through your syllabus and through your teaching to say, well, hold on, maybe I skipped some steps along the way. Uh, what didn't I ask them to do before this that they had to be able to do first? Uh, so having a, a syllabus where it effectively becomes your notebook, uh, I mean, I tend to have dozens of pages of writing uh, in a folder at the end of a semester that effectively do become the design for the next version of the syllabus that I'll teach if I'm going to teach the same class again. Yeah. Kit and mentioned, uh, sorry. Uh, oh, sorry, Daniel. No, uh, no, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to uh, expand a little bit on the important phrase, skipping steps that Kit used in his, in his comment just now, because you can only talk you can only see the problem of skipping steps once you've seen steps. And that I think is one of the essential uh, objectives of the book we've written is to envision the syllabus as a series of steps, not simply, not simply um, more like steps that you climb than the stops that your train makes on a flat surface going from town to town. That is, yeah, things are going to move through time because we don't have any alternative to that. But there needs to be a conscious uh, understanding on the teacher's part that in order to do something in week six, we have to have accomplished something in weeks two, three, four, and five. Otherwise, the students will not know how to do what the teacher wants the students to do in week six. And if you take that as a pedagogical goal and build that thinking, that, that um, accretive thinking, accretive uh, learning into the, the temporal sequence of the syllabus, then you've got something. You can always fine-tune it, but you're beginning to understand goal of the course uh, as uh, focusing on what your students will do, not what you do, but what they do, and not merely what they do at the end of the class, but what they're doing week by week or however often your class meets. And that, that week where your students fail um, may very likely actually be necessary, but you have to start then being able to think about this particular moment where they struggle as part of the design and as maybe a necessary precondition to when they'll succeed. Kit is so optimistic. This is one reason why I like working with him. He's <laughs> able to see the, 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 uh, the useful upside of student failure. That could be, a, I wouldn't say that would be an alternative title, but I could sort of imagine just having a, you know, an essay on, on, uh, on the useful upside of when students don't do what you need them to or don't seem to be able to. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I certainly have great respect for that in you, Kit. But you also even bring in the point where that lesson where you felt unprepared and it just takes off. Those are the moments also to turn back to your syllabus and see there must have been something going on. Um, it couldn't have just been a change in atmospheric pressure. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point, Daniel. And you know, every experienced teacher knows that there are those weeks where you, you go in and, you know, you were too busy with something else, uh, you know, crisis at home, uh, too many other things going on at work, and you think you've arrived unprepared. So you come in with one question, and somehow that becomes the best class. Uh, 
demystifying those mysteries, but only just enough because there, there are always going to be mysteries in teaching um, uh, is also such a critical part of what we're asking people to think about. And Bill, honestly, I'm really, it, oh, sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, honestly, Daniel, it, 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 that kind of event is perhaps the best possible reminder that you have a life and each of your students has, has his or her own life. It is not a collective life held, <laughs> held in common by students. Some of them will have had crises. Some of them will be massively uh, um, overworked in their other courses. Some of them may not be feeling well. In the current moment, we, you can add all sorts of layers of anxiety and fears about individuals or about the epistemological state of the uh, epistemological and epidemiological states of the universe. Um, I, I kind of most like those classes where I didn't and I don't understand why it worked well. Uh, and I try to diagnose for myself what happened. But often I can't come up with a real explanation. And I'm just glad that um, the students not only did something, but I can build on that. And once again, when students succeed in your class, it doesn't mean that was a great class. It needs to be a step for the teacher as well. You want to draw from that the way you find a continuity from last week's episode of a series you're watching in order for people to understand that something important happened last week. Um, that's a, a different, that's another, that's another aspect of, of, um, of not skipping steps. Never turn your back on a successful class, but find energies there because those are your students' energies. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been successful. Yeah, and these steps, that's, that's what I wanted to say. Um, I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that in um, because it is so key and it shows up again and again in the book. And, and you make it also so much richer right now because it's also the step forward into next week. It's the step forward from what we've just done and drawing that line of continuity, as you put it. Um, and this this brings in um, what you say about being a theorist if you're a teacher, but also being a practitioner. Um, you close off the book by uh, mentioning John Dewey as being quite influential. Um, could you maybe uh, speak a, a word or two to his ideas or his life? Uh, anything about uh, that, that 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 brought things forward for you guys? Bill, do you want to field this? I am um, I'm actually looking for the passage. Something, yeah, I was trying to work on an iPad in, at the same time that we're online <laughs> because we don't have printed copies of the book. <laughs> uh, it's coming out next month. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you can ask me again next month. What, what the Dewey moment, I think, is uh, upon us if it has ever gone away. But Dewey's un, unvarnished appreciation of the real of the reality of students, they're not abstract. They exist within bodies, um, becomes a way in which we can invoke one of the most influential of all educational theorists, 
as a way of reminding people um, that you are, as a teacher, you are not a robot. There are many teachers who feel that their administrations think of them only as mechanical devices for dispensing knowledge, perhaps as if they were uh, very, very smart vending machines. Uh, and that students live in their bodies as well. Uh, the syllabus sounds uh, uh, as if it would be a very dry subject. I hope no reader will pick this up and think for a moment that we believe that. Uh, it, it's a book about the lived experience of teaching and the lived experience of learning and teaching with, with one's students. Um, I, I, if I can, I just wanted to, I made a couple of notes, just three brief points uh, that I wanted to be sure not to forget. Um, the first is the value of the question. I tell my students from the beginning of the freshman year, that what I want them to be able to do by the time they graduate college is to ask a question. That is to understand why questions are so important, what makes a good question, what makes a not so good question, and to treasure that as a capacity that they can develop and enrich, make more sophisticated as they proceed through their education, and also to learn how to listen. This gets back to our listening theme to listen to the way questions are posed to them and listen to the way others respond to their own questions. That seems to me much more important than the subject matters, the subject matters they are studying. Not of, of course, they do have to study those subject matters, but it, it won't mean anything if they don't understand, I think, the importance of the question. I also want to say that, uh, and this, this draws on my experience in, in in, in publishing, which is 20 odd years old, but still, uh, I think the connection, the bounce is there. By producing this book, and we were very fortunate to have Princeton University Press back it and be our publisher and bringing Princeton's, the Princeton University Press's prestige and visibility to the subject, not, not to the authors, the authors are fine, but to the subject itself. We very much hope that teachers everywhere will be able to share the book and the ideas in the book upstairs, vertically above them, because most people who teach are not reporting to people who have specialties in their own fields. And in order to make the connection between what happens in an individual classroom led by a teacher and what administrators, uh, often in fields very remote from the teacher's own subject. Having something like this book can make the, the lived work, the lived work of the classroom and the need for this, the critical generosity we talk about um, visible to administrators. I'd love to see, I think we both would love to see this book being talked about by administrators as well, not merely by teachers. And finally, the last thing, um, uh, I want to sort of land on uh, is really why we wrote the book and what we think teaching is about. When I talk to my students and ask them what we're going to do in a freshman class, I will tell them we're going to read this, we're going to read these works, we're going to work on questions, we're going to work on writing, we're going to have very intense conversations about what these things may do. 
but functionally, I want the course to change your life. And sometimes they'll look at me utterly startled. You know, I'll be dealing with freshman engineering students or freshman architects or freshmen who are, who are particularly good uh, at design uh, and want to work on graphic novels. Uh, and yet, I do believe it. It's not, a, it's, it's not a whimsical observation. If the class is successful, it will change the student's life. I will never know how. But I want the student to believe that those are the stakes. And I don't feel that it should just be for the class I'm teaching or the class kid is teaching, but for any class they're teaching. That's the goal. That's the ideal. And that's the kind of objective that I will want to test myself on when I go to my secret version of the syllabus. Did we make any headway there? Well, if there was a better advertisement for this is not a dry book, <laughs> then uh, that last point there certainly was it. Um, uh, I, I can only encourage people to go in. And if you care in any way about teaching the next generation, listening, learning, knowledge, um, <laughs> and if you're listening to this podcast, you do, then uh, then there's everything, all of that in the book. Um, and Bill and Kit, you've you've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to just close off with uh, one last question, namely, what it is that each of you, perhaps collaboratively, I don't know, <laughs> or individually, are working on at the moment? Um, the... The urgencies of the moment mean we've been thinking about online teaching uh, a fair amount. Um, we've been talking a lot lately amongst ourselves and trying to form an essay, uh, for example, about the problem of listening specifically in you know, a Zoom classroom uh, or whatever platform people are using. Uh, one of the problems that's been really interesting to me over these past couple of weeks is the, the social more that you mute yourself, which is, you know, it's the, it's the polite thing to do. Your dog goes running through the background uh, if you're the student, right, and barks and you don't want to interrupt the class. But of course, as soon as everybody's sitting there muted, all of the normal uh, chatter, the laughter, uh, even just sort of the, the random sounds that, that emanate from us suddenly disappear. Um, and the social intercourse of the class grinds to a halt. So uh, we've been asking largely sort of how do the ideas in this book translate to the online space when it seems like many of the, the very human, very animal uh, tendencies that make classes possible have been taken away from us. Uh, so we're hoping to help other teachers and help ourselves find a framework for thinking about online teaching that, again, is as human as possible uh, and uh, as, as uh, far from the idea that, that technologies somehow will solve the teaching problem for us uh, as we can get. And Bill? I, 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 You're um, involved with that as well. I, I, I was going to say I'm involved with that as well. So okay. I think it is described that described that really well. We're also, to be honest, waiting to see what the response is to the book. And what I mean by that really is how people will talk back to us about it. Um, I'd be very happy to hear from listeners and to engage 
with uh, to the extent that we can to ex- engage with I- other people's ideas about their experiences in teaching and ideas for using this book as a way of say training teachers as well. Um, there are many audiences for this project, and one of them I one of the audiences I hope we will have uh, opportunities to to speak with, which would have been a lot easier, of course, before COVID, uh, is people who are in uh, schools of ed and environments where people are explicitly studying pedagogy and the means uh, by which lives can be changed. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, That is William Germano and Kit Nichols. And their book, Syllabus, The Remarkable, Unremarkable Document That Changes Everything, is out this year very soon, as we've just heard, with (laughs) Princeton University Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Bill and Kit. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks so much, Daniel. We really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Thanks, Daniel. It was great. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye now.